Hey there, everybody. If you're listening on our podcast or on the internet, there are words in this episode that we have unbeeped. If you prefer a beeped version of the show, you can find that at our website, thisamericanlife.org. One of our producers here at This American Life, Robin Semyon, wanted to find a New York police officer to talk to for today's program. And she spent two weeks calling police union offices in different boroughs. She reached out to crime reporters who know a lot of cops. Robin used to work in a corrections facility in the Bronx, so she knows lots of cops. And finally, she managed to convince one friend who's on the NYPD to actually sit down with her. And the climate for cops in New York right now is so embattled that this officer asked that we not use her name here on the radio or use her voice or even say what neighborhood she works in. We can say that it's a high crime area. And she and Robin sat down to watch the Eric Garner video together. Robin is black and not a cop. Her police officer friend is white and a cop. Eric Garner, of course, was an unarmed black man who died when a group of New York police officers tried to arrest him for allegedly selling loose cigarettes on the street in July. Robin wanted to understand what a police officer sees when they watch that video. Is this good policing, bad policing? Where does this go wrong? What does Eric Garner do right? What does he do wrong? Like these kinds of questions, basic stuff. That's Robin. She says that she and her friend sat down in front of a computer and they basically just walked through the video, stopping and starting and talking. And her friend told her that at every step, right from the start, Eric Garner seems to be resisting arrest. He is not compliant. He does not produce an ID. He keeps talking and stalling. Even once he's on the ground, there's this five or six seconds where he's laying on his right side. Police go to cuff his left hand. Meanwhile, his right arm is extended on the concrete, his right palm facing up. His fingers are apart. Robin showed this to me on the video. Just watch his right hand. It's face up. Put your hand behind your back. Put your hand behind your back, they say. Okay. And it's right at this moment where there's five police officers on him. His hands are spread. She's saying, why isn't he put... She says to me over and over, why isn't he putting his hand behind his back? See, he's resisting at that moment. Five officers on him. He's on the ground. Like, I don't see how he could put his hand behind his back if he wanted to. Okay, play it again. Yeah. He's down on the ground. He's crawling. His arm is pinned. His right arm is pinned. And then they all pull his arm around and and handcuff him. So it's just that fast. It's that fast. We watched it over and over. She only saw it as him not complying, basically wrestling and refusing to be arrested. And I can only ever see it. I mean, that's the opposite. I can only ever see it as like a person who who seems thoroughly detained. Like I'm thinking like at this point, it's under control. Why keep applying force? And she's like, it's clearly not under control and there is more force to be applied. When Eric Garner says over and over, I can't breathe, Robin sees a man who's dying. Her friend does not. She tells Robin people say that all the time when they're being arrested. They can't breathe. You're hurting them. It happens all the time. The officer totally understood why the police on the scene did not pay any attention to it. And does she understand why you see it the way you do? No. She thinks that when you look at it, you should see it the way she sees it. Yeah. And did it make her mad that you couldn't see it? Yeah. Yeah, it did. Because to her, it's obvious. Yeah. And that's that's a very weird feeling to be sitting next to someone, anyone, let alone a friend, and to be watching a video and saying, like, don't you see this person is in pain? 
struggling to communicate. Hmm. What's odd to me is that now, even after the fact, we know that he really couldn't breathe. And she kind of wouldn't even totally cop to the fact that he was probably telling the truth as we watched the video. Robin went into this conversation figuring they would have at least some common ground. But they talked for four hours, and the longer they talked, the more they both realized there was just nothing, just none. Robin's friend said she did understand why people saw this as a racial incident, but she definitely did not. When Robin asked her what should be done now, she didn't think anything should be done. We're doing a good job, she said. Other police have said this, too. They point out that New York in particular, a city of 8.4 million people, 35,000 officers, guns everywhere. In the last year that's been tallied, 2013, New York officers fired their weapons just 40 times in adversarial conflict. 40 times. This is the second week in a row that we're doing a program about how cops see things differently, doing stories about policing and race. And we have two stories for you today. One of them is about a city where things went just terribly between police and black residents. And the other story is about a place that is the opposite, where they seem to be going kind of great. And we chose these stories because in both of them, we learned things that we had not heard before anywhere about how much can go wrong and how it goes wrong when it goes wrong and about just how rigorous and aggressive and smart police have to be if they want things to go well. From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Stay with us. Equan, inconvenience store. So the community where policing went so badly is called Miami Gardens. It's a city of about 110,000 people with a lot of crime, a higher murder rate than Chicago or New York or Miami. In fact, it used to be part of Miami-Dade County and broke off in 2003, became a separate city, started their own police force after that, partly because the Miami-Dade cops hadn't been so responsive to the community. And at first, apparently, people loved the new cops. Miami Gardens is an overwhelmingly black community. Its leaders are black. They had a black police chief. Residents called the new cops the bumblebees because they seemed to be swarming everywhere, and people like that. And really, it just took a couple years for it to become a total mess, as you'll hear. And the best uh, illustration of how bad it got happened to two men, the owner of a convenience store called The Quick Stop, and one of his employees. Mickey Meek tells the story. The quick stop in Miami Gardens is a hangout spot in the poorer part of the city. There's a big parking lot where groups of men sit in their cars listening to music and smoking cigarettes. A constant stream of customers keeps the front door swinging back and forth. They're stopping in to pick up a bag of chips, some candy, a few beers. When I first showed up, it seemed pretty rough. Some of the regulars clearly have mental health problems. There's been a lot of drug arrests in the parking lot. And back in 2008, right after the city launched its new police department, Officers stopped by and they talked to the owner of the quick stop, a guy named Alex Solly. They asked him if he wanted to partner with the police in a new initiative called the Zero Tolerance Zone Trespassing Program. You know what? Why not? I'm a pro-police. I'm a pro-cop. Alex says he never had any problems inside his store. But under the program, the police would keep an extra eye on the quick stop and on the parking lot. And if they thought something was up, they wouldn't have to wait for Alex to phone in a complaint. They could stop and question or apprehend someone if they felt they had cause. So Alex thought, We're going to work together, fight crime together. It's a new city, new police department. You're going to be able to build a, you know, a great relation with the officers. You know, this sounds great. Alex screwed a metal sign onto the front of his store, declaring it a zero-tolerance zone. 
He liked how official it looked with the city seal. He felt proud. But then, after just a couple weeks, something odd started happening. Cops started coming to the parking lot almost every other day. They used to go inside the store and tell the customer while they're paying in the line, excuse me, you, you, and you, come outside. I was like, outside? Alex says he'd be standing right there in the store, right behind the counter, and officers would ignore him and tell his customers to put down their things. Then they'd take the customers outside and line them up against the wall. The customers were always black. The officers were almost always white. Sometimes you see like 10 people against the wall searching everyone. But I'm confused. Like, did those guys commit a crime? Did those guys really do something? So, I mean, and what would you do in that point? I mean, you would see them pull customers out of line, and what would you say? I told the officer, excuse me, what is the situation? What is the problem? Can somebody explain to me what is... They said, don't worry about it. That's our job. Before long, it wasn't just the customers being questioned. The police started including a guy named Earl. Alex paid him to do odd jobs around the store. One night, right before closing, Alex sent Earl out to the parking lot with a broom and a dustpan. When he didn't come back, Alex went out to check on him. I see only the dustpan and the broom, and I don't see Earl. It wasn't like Earl to walk off the job. The next day when he arrived at the store, Alex asked him about it. Earl said I was in jail last night. I said, why? I said, for trespassing. Trespassing at the store. Earl says he was charged with trespassing where he works. I was upset. I was burning myself inside. I was like, this is impossible. Alex is more than just a boss to Earl, more like a father figure to him. Earl has some mental health issues, and in general, he has a kid-like quality. He first started coming to the Quick Stop years before, when he was 14. He just moved around the corner, but his family life was rough, and his mom couldn't really take care of him. So Alex started keeping an eye on him. Here's Earl. That's why I start, you know, hanging around the store, you know, because Alex treat me like a son, though. So, you know, he sometimes he let me credit stuff, like milk or something, bread or something. I go to the store and get it. I holler at him. And then he gave me a job. I start working. Yeah, I love my job. I love working there, though. We like a family, though. That incident with the police, where Alex walked outside to check on Earl at the end of the night and found only a dustpan and broom, that happened two more times that month. They'll, like, come and grab me from, like, outside. Like, they won't go in the store and ask Alex or nothing, though. They'll just grab me, put me in a police car, take me down to jail, you know. I'm like, man, I work here, though. You feel me? So you would say, I work here, and what would they say? Come on, you ain't supposed to be here. You trespass from here. I'll be like, ask my boss. I'll be telling them, ask my boss. They'll still, oh, we don't care. They'll take me down. Each time the police picked up Earl, they'd book him into the county jail. He'd spend the night there, go to court the next day. And there, he'd be given a choice. Plead guilty to trespassing and get out of jail right away. Or he could fight the trespassing charge, but it would be a hassle and it'd be expensive. You'd have to hire a lawyer and post bond and wait for a trial date. So Earl always pleaded guilty. Some of the officers coming into Alex's store were from a specialized unit that was one of the pillars of the new police department. Their job was to fight serious crime in the city. So Alex wanted to know, 
Why were they even bothering with his store? Why were they bothering with Earl? He says he went and talked to their boss, the commander of investigations, Major Anthony Chapman. I explained to Major Chapman the situation was going on in the store with a different uh, specialized unit that was coming and threatened my guy, my clerics, threatened my customers. You know, he told me, don't, don't worry about it. Everything's going to be fine. I'm going to try to handle this. I'm going to talk to my guys. And uh, he told me, this is my phone number. You can call me anytime. Obviously, it was a big mistake. A mistake, because officers started showing up more and more, he says. Actually, uh, one day, one of the officers from the specialized unit, a female, drove to the parking lot, put the window down and said, great complaint. She stick the finger on me, the middle finger, like, you. And at that time, I was kind of scared. I don't know what to do. It's like, you feel like you can do anything about it. Alex had never felt this way about the police, that they were not on his side. He thought maybe he could make them go away by quitting the Zero Tolerance program. So he took down the sign from his store. When he showed up one morning, someone had screwed another one back into its place. Meanwhile, Earl was now getting picked up everywhere, all over town. Three years into the program, he'd been arrested 63 times and stopped another 99 times. On the police reports, the reason was almost always the same. Earl seemed, quote, suspicious. Suspicious while waiting at the bus stop, or playing basketball, or buying food, or walking to a public restroom. Only once did Earl run. In the arrest report, the officer wrote, quote, Earl stated that he was running because he was tired of the police arresting him for no reason. After that, Earl says it was just easier to give himself up. Sometimes when they pull up, I just walk to them and pull out my ID. Put my ID on the car, put my hands on the car, because I already know what they finna do. Put my hands behind my back. I accept what they got for me, though. Why? Because I be too scared. I be scared they gonna shoot me. It was just like I was a target, though. Like, everywhere they see me, they'll stop me, though. I was getting trespassed from the park, the library. Sometimes they used to come to my grandma's house, though, 5 o'clock in the morning, looking like I'm really like a fugitive or something. Why were they after him? Every time he got arrested, he never fight back. He just follow whatever they tell him to do. Honestly, it's, it's a quiet kid. In other words, easy pickings for the police. That's the only explanation Alex could think of. It's not like Earl had some serious criminal record. He was so shy that Alex gave him jobs like cleaning and stocking, so he didn't have to interact with customers much. It almost seemed like officers were saying to each other, flat out, Let's go over to the quick stop. We'll stop Earl. Low-hanging fruit. This is Jeff Mason. He was a sergeant with the Miami Gardens Police. Alex knew him. His store was in his district. And Alex flagged him down a couple times to complain about what was happening at his store. Jeff told him it was no accident that some officers were targeting Earl. Orders had been coming down. They needed to bring in numbers. We would have roll calls, uh, not only with the sergeants, but with the captains. And yeah, the message would be, we need to see evidence that uh, you guys are making an impact. And you need to justify your existence through numbers. You stop enough people, you'll find something. These were new officers in a new police department that was trying to prove itself. 
Their zero-tolerance program was a version of the broken windows policing theory that seemed so successful in other cities. If you stamp out small offenses, the theory goes, it deters bigger ones. They were sending a message to residents of Miami Gardens that no crime would go unchecked. So officers had to prove they were catching the small stuff, Jeff says, like trespassing. As supervisors, we were expected to do our monthly stats sheet to tally up pretty much everything that the officers did on a daily basis, turn that in. And uh, that, at one time, it was posted. You know, you had competition between platoons and squads. So the, <laughs> the culture was established to where if you wanted to get anywhere in the department or if you wanted to get promoted, then you were bringing numbers. It seemed like this was what residents wanted. Minutes from city council meetings for those first few years show hardly any complaints about police harassment. If anything, when people did complain, it's because they felt like officers weren't responding fast enough. They wanted more police. By 2012, four years into the Zero Tolerance program, the violent crimes that people were most concerned about had not dropped. In fact, murders had increased, so had assaults. The burglaries were down, and vehicle thefts fell by half. Meanwhile, after four years of Earl getting stopped constantly, everywhere he went, Earl and Alex had tried all the normal things you do when you're having problems with the police. So Alex came up with a plan, a pretty extreme one. Yeah, I explained Earl. I said, Earl, I think the most, the better place for you to live is inside the store. You know, we bring mattress, stuff like that, and I told him, yeah, you live here, you sleep here, anything you need to eat and drink at night, when you're here, you can, you know, you can get it. Way in the back corner of the store, at the end of an aisle, there's an 11 by 11 foot room built out of plywood and sheetrock. And inside that room is a mattress and a sink for Earl to wash up in. If you were picking up laundry detergent or toilet paper, you'd be standing right next to where he sleeps. But even that didn't prevent the police from coming in and getting Earl. Not long after his room was built, he got arrested again for trespassing at the store. Earl didn't immediately take a plea this time. Alex doesn't know why. But Earl spent 20 days in jail, and the judge issued a stay-away warning from the store. Alex's next move? He bought a surveillance camera. In fact, he bought four. He decided that that was the only way anyone would believe that he wasn't making this stuff up. It's like, I don't know how to fight back. But I said, you know what? I have it on video. Let him keep doing it on video. Soon he was up to 16 cameras, covering his store inside and out. Now in camera five, you're going to see Officer William Dunasky taking Earl out of the store. Alex showed me some of the videos. There's no sound on them. His cameras don't have microphones. But it's incredible to watch police just come in and grab Earl while he's stocking coolers or taking out the trash. In one video, two police officers are walking up and down the aisles, glancing at customers. And then they head straight for Earl's room in the back of the store. And they take their guns out. I'm laying in my room and the door just opened and I see the police. I'm like, dang. I'm like, what I done did now? Like, oh, you, they like, oh, you ain't supposed to be here. Get out of the room, maybe. So you're putting your shoes on in the aisle? Mm-hmm. In the aisle, though. I'm putting on my shoes in the aisle, though. In the videos, the cops pretty much leave Alex's other employees alone. His other employees aren't black. His customers are. And one of the overwhelming things about watching these videos 
is the pleasure some officers seem to take in harassing them. In one video, a woman in a skirt sits on top of a newspaper box outside the store. A police officer grabs her purse and starts rummaging through it. He turns it upside down and dumps the contents onto the ground. And then he just kicks her stuff around. The officer in this instance is Michael Malone. Of all the police officers Alex captured on tape, he stands out as the biggest bully. In another scene, Malone takes a guy's bag of Red Bulls and hurls the cans all over the sidewalk. And I went to the officer and said, you know what? Why you throw all those Red Bulls all over the place, man? You think that was right? He said, fuck him, what do you care? Alex continued complaining to the police department and continued to get nowhere. And then he says, one day, not long after one of these complaints, a group of officers showed up at the store with their sergeant, Sergeant Martin Santiago. They stood in a line, shoulder to shoulder, blocking the aisles. Another time, Alex says, they confronted him outside the store. He started to feel like they weren't just going after Earl anymore. They were going after him, too. Officers followed me from the store four blocks away, and they stopped me. And that traffic stop was six police cars. And uh, that's when Santiago, Sergeant Santiago walked to my window. He said my tailgate light was out. Tires, he said, your tires bald. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, my tires not bald. And so what happened after that? The Sergeant Santiago came to the passenger side and told me, I'm going to get you, motherfucker. I was kind of getting scared. And I was at home, I was thinking, you know, the only way that those officers and the department feel pressure is to show the whole world what's going on. Just to have it on record to protect myself. So we walked into a building he'd never been in before, the offices of the Miami Herald, and asked to speak to a reporter. Two months later, the Herald published Alex's story on the front page and put some of the surveillance videos online. One of the Herald's reporters, Julie Brown, pulled records that show police had arrested Earl at least 62 times for trespassing. Most of the citations were issued at the quick stop. And overall, Earl had been stopped and questioned more than 250 times. His criminal record was 38 pages long. News outlets all over the country picked up the story. Right now at 5.30 Miami Gardens, police are being questioned about officers stopping and harassing customers at a particular convenience store. I'm being surprised that we have at least about 30, 40 reporters in the parking lot. I have every TV station, every radio station, newspaper. I got people drove from Tampa, family. The whole family just came, they want to shake my hand. I feel happy. That day was, honestly, was like a party, actually, yes. The press attention worked. Police now completely avoided the quick stop. To Alex, it was a huge relief. But the story of police harassment was about to go way beyond just Earl. Two investigative journalists, Alice Brennan and Dan Lieberman, they're from a news startup called Fusion, and they decided to compile stats for all the stops the Miami Gardens Police Department had made since it first started in 2008. It was stunning. This is Alice. The results were stunning. Because in a city of 110,000 people, Miami Gardens only has 110,000 people. And the number of stops that had occurred over a five-year period was 99,980. And so then 
To compare that to the city of Miami, it has a population four times as large as Miami Gardens. Over the same period of time, they'd only made 3,753 stops. 3,700 stops for the city of Miami, compared to 99,000 for Miami Gardens. It's like, I'm going to have to look at that again because uh, what? When you first saw that, did you think that number was wrong? I did. I'm like, this can't be real. This can't be real. This cannot be happening. I thought all of the data was wrong. It wasn't wrong. What shocked Alice the most, though, was more than 11,000 of the stops were for kids. Kids who, in the field contact reports, were labeled suspicious while doing things like playing freeze tag, riding bikes, swimming at pools, or hanging out at a public park. To give me a better sense of just how strange all these police stops looked, Alice ran me through her spreadsheet. Let's just, I'll just sort this really quickly for you. Here we go. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to sort for age, right? So we've got ages one, two, we've got seven-year-olds. This is a particularly alarming one. Five years old, this kid is, and it says the listed subject was fitting the description of the suspect in the area of a burglary. I mean, what is that? Who knows? Okay, so here's another one. This kid was seven years old, stopped for being a suspicious person. Uh, Officer says in the remarks, I was dispatched to the above location, several subjects possibly selling narcotics. This subject was observed in front of this location and pat searched was conducted after consent. No wants nor warrants. So they say they ran a seven-year-old's name. Yeah, they ran the name and what do you know, no wants or warrants were found. Um, it says here in the physical characteristics that this seven-year-old had a slight beard. Right now, Miami Gardens has at least five lawsuits filed against it, all alleging that the police engaged in serious misconduct, racial profiling, and were operating according to a quota system. One of those is a civil rights lawsuit brought by Alex. Two other cases were brought by whistleblowers former police employees who say that when they spoke out against the department's pressure to rack up numbers, their positions were terminated. Miami Gardens officials, through their lawyers, denied all of these allegations and didn't respond to multiple requests for interviews about the cases and about Alice's numbers. Wanda Gilbert is one of the whistleblowers suing Miami Gardens. She was a crime analyst at Miami Gardens PD from 2007 to 2011. It was her job to compile all the field contact numbers and present them at regular staff meetings. What she realized, looking at all those numbers, Wanda says, is that they had no meaningful connection to fighting real crime or making the city safer. No one was saying, Okay, we did um, 556 uh, field contacts, so therefore by them doing this, we only had one burglary. Never. (laughs) It was just gathering stats. In her old job, Wanda says, Officers would look at their field contacts database for suspects when they were trying to solve a crime. But Miami Gardens had collected so many people in its database that it wasn't helpful at all. Jeff Mason filed the other whistleblower lawsuit against the city. He's the former patrol sergeant you heard earlier. They were making so many stops, Jeff says, that supervisors like him couldn't keep up. That five-year-old who was written up as a burglary suspect? Jeff signed off on that one. I mean, how many supervisors do you think were actually reading the remarks on these? Um, As a supervisor, because there were so many coming through, to be specifically reading the remarks, 
it was next to impossible. If the numbers weren't being used in the service of smart policing, then what purpose did they serve? When I first started reporting the story, I heard speculation that the Miami Gardens Police Department needed these numbers in order to get federal grants. There have been reports about other police departments being fixated on quotas and numbers for this purpose. Miami Gardens Police received 21 grants with millions of dollars from the Department of Justice Community Policing Program. But I read through a lot of those applications. Field contact numbers were not a requirement to qualify. They rarely came up at all. I also looked through city council minutes. I thought maybe the police chief was presenting field contact numbers to the city to show that his department was making an impact. But no, nothing there either. In five years, the chief mentioned field contacts only once. So where did this policy come from? Well, I started with the person who was running the city at the time, Mayor Shirley Gibson. She said she didn't know anything about it or the 99,000 stops that had happened in the city. I'm not saying, you know, it's true or untrue. I just don't know. So I'm not going to have a comment, okay, they did this or they didn't do that. I'm just telling you I had no knowledge of that, and I'm not trying to not say I have some responsibility, but I didn't know about it. So many people have denied responsibility for these numbers. No one will say, this policy started with me. No one could point to a piece of paper or a meeting where it was adopted. No one could say where it came from or why. And as much as it might be satisfying to find one culprit who is responsible for a department run amok, or one idea that spread and infected so many of its officers. The reality is, it failed in the way that so many systems fail. A whole bunch of mistakes that compounded over time. No one had a clear vision for what they were doing and why. And in the absence of a plan, things went bad in big ways and small ways. One thing that's clear is there was a weird lack of accountability in Miami Gardens. Officially, the police were supposed to be overseen by an entity called the city manager's office, which many people told me was asleep on the job. There was a city council that appears to have been totally in the dark. The mayor, like you heard, says she had no idea. And there was a police chief, Matthew Boyd, who didn't really seem like he was around much. He was a great guy in the beginning. He was everywhere. He was out out there in his car running around, you know, doing stuff. This is Stephen Kolakowski. He was a sergeant in Miami Gardens from 2007 to 2010. By year three, I never saw him. And then, you know, the rumor starts that that city controller busted him in the butt about golfing too much and stuff. I don't know. A former vice mayor from Miami Gardens told me he doesn't know if the city ever officially reprimanded Boyd for playing too much golf. But he does remember that it was a problem. Boyd's golf game also came up with every former police employee I talked to. Boyd has denied misusing company time. As Stephen remembers it, there just seemed to be an absence at the top that was confusing. Maybe he started the department, got it going, felt he was done, and they, you know, maybe he just didn't want to be there anymore. I'd like to ask him that, though. I'd I'd like to know why. It almost felt like it was a ship without a captain. And, And that's kind of the way everybody, well, I felt, and a lot of the people I knew felt. Like, you know, there's no chief here. You know what I mean? Like, everybody knew he wasn't around, and they had the first mate running the boat. The first mate, in this case, was the former deputy chief. Like the chief, he's denied being the person who brought this policy to Miami Gardens. Their attorney declined my request for interviews.
While no one will take responsibility for initiating the policy, former department employees say the message the officers needed to stop and question large numbers of residents was being conveyed loud and clear. And the officers on the receiving end of that message were mostly white and Hispanic, and they weren't from Miami Gardens or anywhere nearby. And generally speaking, they had little experience dealing with a black population. Wanda Gilbert, the former crime analyst, did some of the background checks during hiring. And one of the things that I had even spoke to the chief about, because, you know, I'm doing the background work on, on these people, I'm going like, like, what's going on here? What's going on here? Because, you know, it was a vast amount of white officers. And so, I mean, what was the demographic then, mostly, of the officers, if you were to break it down? If I break it down, uh, I think at the time the department was like 200 and maybe 26. And out of that, it was probably maybe 40, and that's estimating high, but that included all the black officers. And one of the things that was a challenge to us, because a lot of the officers were new, meaning they were from various areas around the United States. Like where? Oh, from Alaska, Kansas, Missouri, you name it. They were from around the country. And some of them, um, this was all new to them, not only just being Miami Gardens, but also, too, here they are. Some of them now, they're working with a black community, and that was the problem. You didn't know the nuances. In fact, I've even heard officers say that, oh, everybody in this community is a, you know, is a criminal. Former city council members and police employees who were involved in hiring all say that they did try hard to recruit from local police departments. But many in the area thought that the newly formed Miami Gardens police wouldn't last longer than a year. And so local officers didn't want to risk taking jobs there. Stephen Kolakowski, he was a sergeant in Miami Gardens from 2007 to 2010. He came down from the Baltimore Police Department. And he says that in Miami Gardens, they ended up with a lot of officers who just seemed out of place. You know, you could see it on their face. They were in culture shock. Like it was almost overwhelming to them. Just, it, you could almost see they were nervous. And I, I, sometimes I wondered to myself, you know, what are you doing here? You know, just, well, what are you doing here? Go back home. Because Alex spoke up, some serious changes have taken place in Miami Gardens. The police chief, Matthew Boyd, and his deputy, they're both gone now. The new police chief is a guy named Stephen Johnson, and he reports every week to a new city manager. Johnson keeps him in the loop about how many times police are stopping residents. In the last year, those numbers have dropped about 70%. Alex has talked to the new police chief, and he likes him. He likes that Johnson gives out his personal cell phone number to residents. But Alex is still on edge. I really still don't feel comfortable. I don't. Honestly, I don't feel comfortable right now. If they're going to come out, they're not going to come back. Because there's still some of the officers in the city. The officers that came to your store Correct. are still on the force. Yeah. Uh, it's still, the same officer is still in the street. Anthony Chapman, the police commander whose officers repeatedly harassed Alex's customers in Earl. He's still at the police department. He denies all allegations against him and declined to be interviewed. Martin Santiago, the sergeant who Alex has threatened him at a traffic stop. He also still works there, as does William Dunasky, the officer who pulled Earl out of the store in that very first surveillance video. The city declined to make Santiago and Dunasky available for comment. Michael Malone, the officer who threw and kicked customers' personal things, he did leave the force, but it was voluntary. 
An internal affairs report concedes misconduct, but Malone was never disciplined for his actions. He could not be reached for comment. It's been more than a year and a half since Earl was last stopped, but he doesn't feel safe. His world is still a paranoid one. He still lives at the store and rarely goes out, and when he does, he gets scared. Sometimes he goes to the park to play basketball, and if the officer drive by, he call me. I'd be like, Alice, the police trying to get me. Police, police coming. I feel like they're gonna try to harm me, though. So I come out of the store so I can see him cross the street in the park, but you can see him watching back and forth, like, do you think they're gonna stop me? They're not gonna stop me. I said, just walk. Alice would be like, Earl, they ain't gonna mess with you no more. I got you, though. I got you, Earl. Right before I said goodbye to Earl, I asked him this one last question. What? I don't know. Is there anything I haven't asked you that you want to tell me? Did I, did I miss anything? You ain't working for the police, right, though? You ain't working for the police. He asked, are you going to try to do something to me? I told him no. Mickey Meek is one of the producers of our program. Coming up... Wouldn't it be lovely for a change to hear a story about police and black residents that could give any small sense of hope at all? We get to that. We absolutely get to that in the second half of our show. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. This is American Live from Ira Glass. Today's program, Police See Things Differently, Part 2. It is our second episode with stories about policing and race. We've arrived at Act 2 of our program, Act 2. Comey, don't play that. You may have heard in the news already that FBI Director James Comey gave a speech this week that was about the subject of today's program, about policing and race, a speech that was amazing for its directness and its sweep. He said law enforcement needs to redouble its efforts to resist bias and to do a better job serving black Americans. Attorney General Holder, of course, has said similar things in the past. Our producer, Robin Semyon. Robin is the one who talked to her police officer friend about the Eric Garner video earlier in the show. Robin has noticed that local heads of police departments in cities around the country do not talk this way in the moment when people are thinking about this the most. And that's after these controversial incidents where black men are killed by white officers. Big city police chiefs don't like to talk about race. When they do, they like to say it doesn't matter. New York Police Commissioner William Bratton, in response to Eric Garner, said, quote, I personally don't think race was a factor. After Oscar Grant was shot in the back... Famously, lying face down on a crowded train platform at Fruitvale Station in Oakland, BART Police Chief Gary Gee said there was no, quote, nexus to race that provoked this to happen. It's what Milwaukee Police Chief Edward Flynn said about race in last week's show. At the level of cop working in the neighborhood, race is irrelevant. That's what Saratoga Springs Police Department in Utah said just last week about 22-year-old Darian Hunt, also black. The attorney for the Saratoga Springs Police Department says race did not play a factor in the shooting death of Darian Khan. She said Every time I hear this, race is not a factor. My gut reaction is the same. Why say that? How would you know? What are you basing that on? Because there's science on this. In fact, years of research. And that research shows the opposite. FBI Director James Comey talked about this in his speech this week. Much research points to the widespread existence of unconscious bias. 
Many people in our white majority culture have unconscious racial biases and react differently to a white face than a black face. In fact, we all, white and black, carry various biases around with us. Most of our participants associate young black men with the idea of threat. Psychologist Josh Carell did some of the key research the FBI director was talking about. Josh studies implicit racial biases, basically feelings that we all have about race that we may or may not be aware of. He's tested hundreds of cops. He flashes pictures of white and black men up on a computer screen. Some are holding weapons and some are holding a wallet or a can of Coke. And you have to decide instantaneously, shoot or don't shoot. And Josh sees evidence by how fast you do it and how many mistakes you make of what your underlying assumptions are about black and white people, your implicit biases. For most of us, we would say things like, oh, I like, you know, I like, I like black people. Um, I like black men. I don't have anything against them. I don't have any negativity toward them. Right. That's an explicit report of an attitude. But it goes through an editing process. Huh. When I flash a, a picture up on a screen and ask you to respond in... 630 milliseconds, you don't have time to edit. It's like everybody has this gut response that is, oh, black means threat. By everybody, he means everybody, black and white, including police. Josh's findings show that police officers are more likely to see the images of black men as threatening, even though police officers usually make the correct decision to shoot or not shoot. In fact, the rest of us, untrained people like you and me, do far worse than cops. We're more likely to shoot a black man with a wallet, and we're less likely to shoot a white man with a gun. But not all cops outperform us. Josh has also given his video game test to police who work on gang units. What he's found is that the nature of policing gangs, which often means rounding up and arresting groups of young black men, does something to those officers and their decisions to shoot. When we test them, they're worse than other police. So we see bias in their response times and we see bias in the mistakes that they make. Huh. So unlike regular cops, those special unit cops seem to be more likely to shoot an unarmed black target than an unarmed white target. Josh says that gang units, unlike regular police, are like us. They do badly on these tests, even with all their training. After talking to Josh, I wondered, if this research is out there, if we know this, why do we always hear race is not a problem? Are there police officers anywhere who are having a conversation about race? About how their biases might be making them worse at their jobs? Looking around, I learned there is training for police based on this science. Implicit bias training, it's called. There's a popular two-day seminar that dozens of departments have used. So I phoned the Department of Justice, and an official there told me that 75 police departments nationwide have done the two-day seminar. And I asked several people at the Department of Justice, could they point me to a police force that's aggressively confronting racial bias and that's seeing results? Maybe a department that had been on the DOJ's radar for being reckless with deadly force, particularly with black men. And they'd changed for the better. A tall order, I know. But the DOJ had an answer. Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. I'm Sean. Hi, Sean. Great to meet you. Um, we're gonna go upstairs and talk My fellow producer Sean Cole and I visited Las Vegas Police Department together. Thanks. Things were bad here for a while. 
Between 2007 and 2011, police shot 104 people. And 11 of those were not justified, according to the Justice Department and the police department itself. And eight of the 11 problematic shootings were of unarmed black men. That's the number that got a lot of attention. The peak of this trend was in 2010. Then we had a couple things happen. This is Assistant Sheriff Kirk Primus. He sat down with us in his office. One is uh, we had a couple high-profile shootings uh, that just sparked the interest of the community. And the outrage of the community. In one case, an officer shot and killed Travon Cole, a small-time pot dealer during a raid. Cole was 21, black, and unarmed. The cop who shot him said Cole made a threatening move toward him, but the evidence showed otherwise. Cole's family received a $1.7 million settlement. The officer involved was suspended for 40 hours. As an aside, this Travon Cole was not the Travon Cole they were after. Then, Assistant Sheriff Prima says, a local newspaper did a five-part expose. On the number of officer-involved shootings in Las Vegas, a 20-year history of them. And uh, so it was like a storm of, of incidents that, that really told us we'd need to do something, which we knew already. So the Las Vegas police reached out to the Department of Justice. Or it was the other way around, depending on who you ask. The DOJ did a nearly year-long assessment of the department, and in 2012, they came back with their results. Oh, they said, we're great. No. Uh, <laughs> uh, they, uh, well, if you've read the report, there's, I believe there was uh, initially 75 recommendations. 75 things the department needed to do to help fix the problem of officers using deadly force inappropriately, shooting unarmed suspects, and particularly unarmed black men. 75 things. It's interesting to compare this with Miami Gardens, where, as you heard, a lot of different things conspired to create a big problem. Here in Las Vegas, it was going to take a lot of different things to fix a big problem. And here's what strikes you when you look at this list of 75 suggestions. For one, a lot of them seem obvious. Recommendation 22, the department should implement restrictions on when officers may shoot at moving vehicles. Recommendation number 36, supervisors should be trained on the new use of force policy before they go ahead and train other people on the new use of force policy. I'm paraphrasing. Speaking of, more than one-third of these recommendations include some form of the word train or training. De-escalation training, advanced training in procedural justice. Plus, the DOJ recommends organizational changes and changes in the way that use of force cases are investigated. And this would all seem pretty standard if it weren't for how the Las Vegas police responded to these suggestions, which is to say, stunningly well. They're like the overachieving star pupil in the class. The recommendations were voluntary. They didn't have to act on any of them. But Assistant Sheriff Primus told us that the department had already implemented 47 of the 75 recommendations before the DOJ even got around to suggesting them officially. These days in Las Vegas, each and every officer-involved shooting is investigated by no fewer than five committees. Assistant Sheriff Primus told us that on one of the committees, the civilian members, that is people like you and me, can actually outvote four to three the police members on what direction an investigation should go in. As a result of all of this, officers who are involved in unjustified shootings are punished more than they were before. And by more than before, I mean they weren't before. I'm Deputy Chief Kirk Primus. This morning at 12.08 hours... Also, every time there's an officer-involved shooting in Las Vegas now, an official, sometimes Primus himself, shows up at the scene and explains on video what happened, and then they put the video up on YouTube, just to be as transparent as possible. 
Uh, one officer discharged uh, their firearm. The suspect was hit uh, several times and ran into the bathroom where she locked the door. And all of these solutions, they worked. Last year, there were zero unjustified shootings by police in Las Vegas. And all of these solutions, they worked. Last year, there were zero unjustified shootings by police in Las Vegas. But the key reform that Assistant Sheriff Primus has focused on, the one he says is the leading reason that the department has been able to cut down on officer-involved shootings, is number 28 on the DOJ recommendation list. We started a reality-based training program. A reality-based training program. And really what that simply is, is we took scenarios, our own department scenarios. So actual events that Las Vegas cops have actually been through. And recreated them. In a vacant lot with fellow police officers pretending to be criminals. And we made them as realistic as possible to expose them to the situations where they had to make deadly force decisions or force decisions. So real cop cars, real police radios. The bullets are fake, though. Sir, let me see your hands and get out of the vehicle! Robin and I watched a couple of these drills. In this one, six officers respond to a pretend carjacking. None of them have been told what's going to happen, so they have to just respond like they would in real life. Now, again, the point of this training is to figure out alternative solutions instead of using force, instead of firing your weapon. You may have heard this buzzword recently, de-escalation, basically calming a situation down before it hits a boiling point. This is what de-escalation sounds like. Nobody's going to shoot. Step out. You haven't done very much wrong right now. You're making it worse for yourself. Like come out, you ain't going to shoot me, man. Nobody's going to shoot. Put your hands up when you come out the door. Straight up in the air. The fake suspect gets out and walks backwards toward the police who fake arrest him. No guns were fired. This was policing through persuasion. Their trainer said they did really well. Good. Keep stepping back now. Come back. Stop right there. Watch back to the But the DOJ recommendation I was most interested in was number 4.2.1. Las Vegas police should provide its commanders, supervisors, and officers with advanced, specialized training in fair and impartial policing. In other words, implicit bias training. There were no classes scheduled when we visited, but we got to talk to a few of the instructors about what they teach, the most candid of whom was training officer Marla Stevens. She's third-generation police, been with the force for 15 years. She says cops can be a rough crowd, a really rough crowd, especially if they're at a class that's required and that has the word bias in it. So she's strategic about how she kicks things off. She says she starts her class by saying... I understand some of you don't want to be here, and I get that. I talk about how we got to this place, and I tell them, you know, this this started with with the officer-involved shootings that we had in 2011. Um, the the fact is, did we shoot more unarmed black men than than we did white? Absolutely, we did, and we put those numbers up there and show them yeah. to our to our officers and say these are the stats. You can't argue with those numbers. From there, she eases them to the concept of bias, baby steps. First, acknowledging biases nobody finds shameful or controversial. She says her class is filled with truck-loving men. So they talk about the thing that divides them, Chevy or Ford. And start the whole fight in the audience of which truck is better. 
Next up, she nudges them toward more personal biases, talks about her own, and then she gets to race. If you can't be honest enough with yourself to say, why am I really stopping this guy? Am I stopping this guy because I just watched him jaywalk and there's something not right here? Or are you stopping him because he's a black guy in a white neighborhood? Be honest with yourself. Ask yourself those questions. And if you have that bias, you need to recognize it. That's the first, that's the first thing, is recognizing that you have it. I'd been wondering how forceful these trainings were. And what was happening here didn't seem like garden variety sensitivity training. These were hard questions she was forcing the cops in her classes to face. And if you can't fix it, then maybe you're not in the right line of work. You know, like maybe this isn't for you. I'm not afraid to say that to somebody either. Really? Look, I'm at an age now. I just don't care. I mean, what's right is right and what's wrong is wrong. And if you want to sit around and say, oh, it's all bullshit, well, maybe, maybe this isn't the place for you. The takeaways from the class, what I liked most about when they were teaching us about biases is having a bias isn't being racist. This is Officer Brett Brosnahan. He's been on the force for six years and took the implicit bias class. He talked with Sean. Having a bias isn't being sexist. It's none of those things. Biased is, you know, maybe I've stopped three or four guys that look exactly like this man. And every time I've stopped them, I've found guns or, or dope on them. So you just put the traits from the person that was guilty onto the person that's innocent. And does that, I mean, does that make you feel bad when you realize that you think that? Do you know what I mean, yeah. like, about yourself? It is. It's, um, it's scary because it's not fair. It's not fair for me to assume that this guy is going to have the same background. I mean, he, uh, he might be the CEO of a company and just out for a walk and didn't want to walk to the crosswalk. I don't know. These days, whenever Brett rolls up on a situation, a traffic stop or questioning a suspect, whatever it is, he says he tries to keep his mind totally open, thinking, this could be anyone. The class also made him reassess something that happened to him that's now legend at the department. It actually happened a month before he took the training, and it was horrible. Last June, on a Sunday morning, two of Brett's fellow officers were shot to death in a pizza place on the north side of the city. Brett responded to the scene not long after. The other customers, of course, were freaking out, yelling, he went that way, he went that way, meaning the shooter. Brett figured it might be a revenge killing of some sort, either against cops in general or these two officers in specific. In that area, I mean, it's a high gang environment. There's a lot of gang members there. And, um... Did you think male, female, black, white, anything like that? Male, probably black or Hispanic. I mean, northeast area part of Las Vegas, it's a large black and Hispanic population. Um, so, you know, you, you go with the odds. Brett takes off on foot in the direction everyone's pointing and eventually ends up at a Walmart. Customers, employees, everyone is flooding out of the store, screaming. So now... This isn't just an isolated shooting of two cops. This is an active shooter in a crowded public place. And at this point, the color of the suspect in Brett's mind changes from black or Hispanic to white. Brett knows about active shooter situations. He trains other officers in how to deal with these cases. Columbine, Aurora, Sandy Hook. When Brett thinks active shooter, he thinks young white male. The whole story is too long to tell here, but in short, Brett ultimately finds himself in an empty Walmart getting ready to ambush the gunman in the automotive section. It's a young white male, 
semi-automatic pistol in his hand. He doesn't see Brett. And I start to make my final turn to get a good angle on him. And I come almost face-to-face with a female, probably four or five feet away. And keep in mind, all this now is happening in fractions of a second. But my first thought is, why is she in here? And then I look more at her, and I'm like, she's not a victim. She's not a customer. She wants to be exactly where she is right now. In all the commotion, people yelling and pointing and telling Brett where the shooter was, no one ever mentioned there were two of them. Brett and the woman exchanged gunfire from four or five feet away. Miraculously, she missed him. Brett hit her in the shoulder. He ran out of the store and let another team of officers take over. After a firefight, the male shooter was dead. His wife shot herself in the head. So this was what was on Brett's mind when he went into the implicit bias training class a month later. When they started to explain that these biases aren't based on being racist, they're not based on being sexist, they're just based on our experience, I was like, oh my gosh, I've been teaching this for years. Active shooters are white guys. Active shooters, when we role play, are white officers that act as the suspect. We never throw a female in the mix. So I had that aha moment, wow, That's what happened to me. I thought that this woman wasn't going to be a threat to me and let her remain as she was a little bit longer than I probably should have. It was like a real-life version of the computer test that researchers do in the lab. White female, armed, shoot or don't shoot. And Brett paused for just a second. I asked my police officer friend in New York, the one I watched the Eric Garner video with, if she thought some sort of bias training would be valuable for the NYPD. And she literally rolled her eyes and said it was insulting to tell her she didn't know how to talk to black people. Roughly half of her coworkers at the NYPD aren't white. The thing she felt way more urgently was how hard the past months have been, ever since Eric Garner's death the hardest for her in all of her years at the NYPD. She says crowds form when she makes arrests more than ever. It feels more dangerous. She feels like she's risking her life every day for a city of people who hate her. She feels alone and threatened. And you know, I have to point out to our classes too, is the public biased towards us? Sure they are. Again, Marla Stevens, one of the implicit bias instructors. She says lots of cops have this feeling my friend has. And it's actually useful in her class, something to talk about. Do they have stereotypes about us? They most certainly do. Which, you know, it's aggravating too. So so turn that around. You know, if you don't like that being thrown on you by people that don't know you, how do you think that people on the street feel when you prejudge them? And you don't know them either. It's the same thing. And it, it's, it's, it's like beating your head against the wall, trying to get both sides to understand this concept. You know, it really is. This week, the FBI director, James Comey, talked about this exact problem of not being able to see each other. Everything I've been hoping a police chief would say after one of these incidents, he said, to police. He told them, basically, I'm one of you. My grandfather was a cop. I have great affection and respect for police officers. And, he said, there's nothing more American than the conversation we need to have now about race. 
I am descended from Irish immigrants. A century ago, the Irish knew well how American society and law enforcement viewed them as drunks, ruffians, and criminals. The Irish had some tough times, but little compares to the experience on our soil of black Americans. That experience should be part of every American's consciousness. And we, especially those of us who enjoy the privilege that comes with being the majority, must confront the biases that are an inescapable part of the human condition. We must speak the truth about our shortcomings as law enforcement and fight to get better. We simply must speak to each other honestly about all these hard truths. Produced today by Sean Cole with Stephanie Fu, Hannah Joffrey Walt, Mickey Meek, Jonathan Menhivar, Brian Reed, Robin Semyon, Alyssa Ship, and Nancy Updike. Our senior producers, Julie Snyder, editing by Joe Lovell. Production help from Simon Adler. Seth Lind is our operations director. Emily Condon's our production manager. Elise Bergerson's our office manager. Adrian Mathewitz runs our website. Elna Baker scouts stories for our show. Research help from Michelle Harris and Christopher Sotala. Music help from Damian Gray from Rob Geddes. Special thanks today to Baraka Short, Stefan Lopez, Jesse Dukes, Susan McGregor, Mosey Secret, Wilson Sayre, WNYC's Kathleen Horan, and Capitals Ozzy Pabara, Elsa Chang, Phil Goff, Brian Nosek, and Laurie Friedel. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Tori Malatia. He wants you to know he's down. Oh, I like you know I like I like black people. Um, I like black men. I don't have anything against them. I'm Eric Glass. Back next week with more stories of this American life. You can't judge a book by looking at the cover. Look, come on.